river's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm a downdoor junkie through and through. Bob the Bow Hunter, what's going on, buddy? Oh, just living the dream and getting some podcasts done. We just got to put them all together and edit them now. Yeah, it feels good to be back on the saddle. Yeah, yeah, we're going to have... Back well, we got saddle. three recorded. We just haven't put one out in a couple of weeks because we got to do this intro. So here we are. Yep. So here we are. Uh, who do we got this week, Bob? Well, we finally got Jay St. Charles on. Uh, we were going to get him on last year. He had some health issues i believe you talked to him and and uh obviously his father is kind of the godfather of bow hunting pretty much and jay is no slouch at being involved and and uh you know one of the founding members of compton i believe and and he's been around and seen a few things and and what a great guy just a fun good guy to talk to and we basically had to do two of them because we just couldn't cover it all in one, and and uh, so this first one will be kind of the history of bow hunting in the Northwest, pretty much, and how it all got started, and how it kind of, you know, took off, and a lot of that was his dad, and and man, do we have so much to be thankful for there, because, you know, like a lot of things, you often wonder what would have happened if, you know, those key people weren't involved, you know. Yeah, a hundred percent. Jay's such a well-spoken, soft. Uh, yeah, I just love talking to him. He's like, you know, I do Doug, Doug Borland, Marv Clink, and I mean, they they just they're they're like talking to the old wise one. I just picture, you know what I mean? They're so such such good guys. So yeah, a hundred percent. You know, we we were talking last week a little bit about YouTube and you know watching all this YouTube stuff, and you said you just burn out on watching hunting on youtube and you started really getting into uh, native american stuff um on youtube and talking about you know the, the importance in their culture of checking in with their elders and and it, it really kind of came full circle to me with the podcast and and our involvement politically here in the state of oregon and and it's easy to come up with our ideas and think that we've got it all figured out as young bucks, but it's so important to stop and to go back and to talk to your elders because they've got the answers. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's probably been done before. <laughs> it, it definitely has, but I, I think that's a, it's a uh, process you don't want to skip. Um, uh, the, the old guys have, uh, they have the experience and, and uh, it's, it's easy to uh, to discount the old guys thinking they're old, but they didn't get old by not living through all this. So yeah. um, I, I hope you guys get something from this podcast. I think there's some some really good history and, and some really good information captured here. So, um, yeah. And like Bob said, it's part two. Uh, or uh, This will be part one of a, of a two-part interview with Jay. And so this will be the, this will be the first part. And I hope you guys uh, – follow through and listen to the second part as well. So Jay, have you been in the Seattle area your whole life? Pretty much, pretty much. I was south of Seattle, uh, 
for for years. I grew up down there where the archery shop was, you know, and then I went to school down there. And, uh, and about 20 years ago, we got out of the south end, as it's called, down there. And now I'm up on the east side, uh, kind of at the base of the foothills near uh, Snoqualmie, North Bend, a little town called Fall City. And uh, okay, I always yeah. kind of wanted to move up into the Snoqualmie Valley, and that's where we're at now. And so, yeah. It's a, okay, that's very cool. Part of it. It's an old dairy farm with uh, more old buildings than the county would ever let me have on this little posted stamp I'm on right now. But so you know, it's like a 1926 homestead sort of thing. So, yeah. And you're uh, still building bows and. Still making sawdust, yeah. Make a lot of sawdust, and uh, so still offering bows for sale, yeah. And uh, still enjoying it. Uh, I kind of work more towards making stuff that I want to make, and and hoping somebody wants to wants to buy it so they don't stack up here, you know. <laughs> well, so yeah, um, we'd love to get in today a little bit about uh, your childhood and. And, you know, growing up with uh, the legend of your old man and, and the archery shop and whatnot, I don't know if we can go back that far, but we'd love to dig into it. Yeah, yeah, I can do. That's my, I, the, the, the shops that my dad built out in uh, the Northwest Archery Company, their old company business, uh, started in 49, and he had, my dad had a, um, had been building bows and had made stabs at, at making his living off archery uh, since the, uh, since the 40s, actually, and since the early 40s. And, and, uh, and then he finally found this property out in Normandy Park and, uh, it was about it was the site of an old sawmill, and it was five acres at the time out there, and and everybody told him he was out of his mind because there was nobody out there. You know, I can't have a business out that way. You know, with no people, and uh, we had we had a state highway right in front of our house, but Dad used to say he could you know he could lay out there in that highway for half an hour, and no cars had run over you. Because there's no, you know, there's no traffic. And we had a big gravel pit next to us. That was our neighbor. And um, but uh, it one one of the things that that occurred about that time, uh, there was we had bow hunting in '49. There were a few postage stamp uh, again small units kind of dotted around the state. We had a mule deer unit uh, called Mason Creek Game Preserve. And then there was a toucan down in the southeast corner of the state. We we had some elk down there. And then we picked up one or two others, but that was was kind of it. If a guy wanted a hunting only unit. Do you know when those seasons were established? Yeah, the the first bow hunting we had was 
was 37 or 38. It was a year after Oregon picked up their first season. We, we trail Oregon by a year in that. And Wisconsin had a bow hunting only. I think it was Wisconsin was the first state that I know of that had a bow hunting only activity. And then Oregon, and I think we were the third state. And I think it was about 38 maybe that we did. Uh, that makes sense. If you know your state, I know what our state is. <laughs> well, I think <laughs> because that, it's a year later. Yeah. I believe that Canyon Creek. I believe it was thirty-five. Okay, then then we were we had our first unit in thirty-six. Then if that's the case, and um, that first, as my dad described in his book, anyway, that first unit was was. It was pretty special anyway. Everybody, the, the guys that were archers at the time, and they were in the state, the guys that were archers that also wanted to go bow hunting was a fairly small group. I think there were probably like 35 people showed up, but that's still quite a few for that back in those days. And, and uh, so we had our first season, and and then the season happened, and then, the uh, Wildlife Commission at the time had a meeting and decided they didn't want to do that anymore. So they told us, well, you're, you, had a, you had a season for a year. Good for you. Now you're all done. Put your bows away and get your rifles out again, you know. We, we could still take our bows out and hunt during the rifle season, but they, they, they took it away from us. They took our bow-only season away. And my uh, at that same meeting... Uh, one of our main spokespeople at the time was a fellow named uh, Cor Durier, spelled K-O-R-E, Durier. He's an insurance salesman from Everett, but he was, what he mostly did was make, him, make archery tackle and teach archery, and he was kind of the, one of the centers of the archery community. And he was at the meeting, and my dad was along with him, was a good friend of Cor's, and uh, so they, they uh, actually they brainstormed that night. At the first day of the meeting, they took the season away. They went back the next day, and Dad describes this bended knee experience, begging for the season to have it back again. And they finally talked their way into it and got the season back again. But he, he says, "Man, that was a terrible experience. I don't want to have that again. We've got to, we got to do something to get this." sport of bow hunting on its hind legs and that sort of sent him off on a little bit of a a life journey to make that happen and first in our state and then everywhere else he could do that as well so that was uh it, it, it like today the guys that love bow hunting you know really want to just hunt with a bow and arrow uh, it's pretty it, it can kind of grab a hold of you and yeah. uh, that was true back then. So, uh, but anyway, they found this property, started the Northwest Archery Company in 1949. And uh, by that time, he'd started selling bear products. And he had a he had a relationship with with Fred and Fred Bear and, and the company, and we became the West Coast warehouse for Bear's products. So we had a a bunch of bare bows 
uh, you know, we had a shop and, uh, and my dad spent some of the time on the road selling bear products. Uh, he, he had an agreement with bear that he was just operating on a commission only basis. So he was his own boss. He didn't have anybody telling him what to do and he, where he go when and whatnot. He just kind of, he was a pretty good salesman. And uh, he he just started a lot of mom and pop archery shops, and gas stations, and sporting goods stores, and stuff all over the West. So that was he was out running around the countryside doing that a lot of the time. And my mom and and the rest of the family and my mom's sister early on uh, managed the store. So we had a retail store and in this warehouse business. And uh, I arrived in 49, the same time the business did. So uh, that was kind of my earliest memories were, you know, the beginnings of the store. And we built our own building. You know, we, my, my, uh, my grandfather, my mom's dad and, and, and my dad built the building from scratch and um, it just sort of expanded from there but I yeah there was no no time when that I was growing up that we didn't have the archery shop and and of course we had that till moving ahead but then too far we really the store was there till 2006 so that's pretty long run it was there till yeah, that is a long run. I, I thought it uh, was only there to the 90s. I had no idea it was there into the 2000s. Yeah, yeah. 2006, they, they uh, we had the last day there. But um, through uh, How many, uh, growing up, yeah, yeah. How many siblings do you have? Well, I I, I had, there, there were five of us. And... Uh, my half sister Linda was from uh, a dad's previous marriage. He lost his first wife to rheumatic fever and heart complications from that. Oh, in, in mid forties, and uh, so and he had a daughter from that, and that was my my older sister and Linda, and then so that I was. I was born in 49 and I have uh, a brother, Joe, and my sister, Suzanne, is just a couple of years younger than I am, and my sister, Rochelle. So, three sisters and a brother. And, um, yeah, we we all worked in the shop from one time or another. Some of us for, for almost forever. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I... I uh, through school, through junior high school and whatnot, and after school, actually grade school, all through that, that was kind of the it was the summer job, but it was the after school job, making arrows, uh, outfitting bow hunters, archers from the store, uh, shooting arrows. It was it was a lot of fun. Uh, your sister Suzanne, she. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, your your sister she, Suzanne, she still still got her nose to the grindstone, building arrows, right? Yeah, yeah. She 
she took when the store closed in 2006 she took the part of the the shop that she wanted which was to make arrows she'd always made all her arrows or since she was pretty small she'd made was mostly involved in that so she took the arrow business and made it she still has northwest archery she took the uh the name and uh and she's still making a lot of arrows she it's what she does full time but she's she's happy to be just a one person show and she doesn't make tons of arrows but she makes pretty much the arrows that she wants to make you know which is which is the best thing you can do you know Absolutely. Uh, I I was there at the short store. Uh, other than you know, that's that's the place that I worked until '69. Uh, I went in the service for four years. I went in the Coast Guard. That was available, and and so I was I was gone from '69 through '73. And uh, and then I'd always thought I'd go back and and give the the store and the business a real go after I all the time I was in there I I had a lot of time in the Coast Guard sitting and watching a radar scope go around and around and sort of planning my next the next thing to do after that and I was I was in I was I was a deep water Coast Guard I was on an icebreaker that, that did Arctic and Antarctic trips. And um, and then I was on a, a cutter out of Kodiak as a radar operator again. And, and uh, we were mostly international fish cops. We were, we were doing rescues and whatnot too, but we were out there taking National Marine Fisheries guys around to Japanese and Russian and Korean fishing fleets and boarding ships and uh, finding people, confiscating ships. It was, it was like being a pirate. It was kind of fun. <laughs> there. And uh, so, yeah, we had some adventures with the, with the Russians and whatnot up there. And then I came out and uh, went back to the shop and, you know, as they say, tried decided to make a real go of it and put my energy into that same energy I'd put in anything else and and um so it yeah it was an interesting experience. Um in the in the early days of the shop and I don't want to just rattle on here, but the we had some uh one of the things that would that occurred in the early fifties was uh the, the early days of the NFAA were happening and that that game that they the NFA created the field round the 14 target course that was the basis of the field round uh, was was a pretty fun game and uh, at that time around our area or even around the Seattle area we have, we had about a tenth of the population we have right now there's a lot of acreage available and and uh, one of my dad's hunting partners, uh, Bob Kelly, 
and a number of people or close friends of my dad were involved in these archery ranges, just just playing the game and putting them up. Kelly was a state field archery president at one time, and I, he was writing in his, we had this newspaper called The Quiver back then. In fact, it's still, our field archery club in the state still has the same quiver that's still being published. That's just a, the NFA affiliate magazine now. And the back then it was <clears throat> the tackle was really simple. It was whatever anybody showed up with. That's what they shot the course with. And, and uh, but the Kelly mentioned that we can't, we can't, they said in the quiver, we can't build ranges fast enough to keep up with the demand. And there were ranges, not much more than, 20, 15, 20, 30 miles apart, all up and down the what we would call the I-5 corridor. Now, there was no I-5, but that up and up and down between Vancouver and Portland and Bellingham. Uh, and then on the east side, it was the same thing was going on on a little smaller scale around Yakima and Wenatchee and all this stuff. They all had field courses anyway. And... Uh, that's what these guys did every weekend. You know, there was nothing, there was no TV and uh, a guy, there were a few golf courses around, but they would, uh, that's where we grew up when we were little kids was at the, we, we had a field range just a few miles from the store. And, uh, you know, it was a family deal. We had, there were, there was a whole raft of guys that came back from World War II. Seems like everybody was a veteran back in those days, and they were all trying to raise a family. And they were all looking for something inexpensive and fun to do on the weekends. And the and the um, so some of them became archers. And our store was supported. The retail store was supported by the local uh, the local archers and the field archers, and that. There was a store called Seattle Archery that was up in the north end of Seattle, and then there was us, and there was a one in Tacoma, but not a lot of retail stores. But this this is when the there was before field art in, in the, the 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 archery club, the Cascade Archers actually date from around 1940. The NFA dates you know, back before 1949 and 50, it goes back in, into the 30s, the beginnings of it anyway. You know, it's, they they shot a similar round, you know, describing the Hugh Sylvan Archer, you know. And uh, would you say so that, that uh, a lot of these guys were hunting with their bow and arrows as well, or was it just target shooting at this point? Well, the, the only, if the only guy, if, if they were, most of the guys that were that were uh, bow hunters were also target shooters. In other words, they they weren't. I can't think of anybody that didn't shoot some target, and it was part of the target community that didn't become you know that, that if they were a hunter, they, that's where they came from was target archery. In other words, they, that's what got them started. There was no, 
bow hunting community that wasn't part of a greater archery community. So there was a, a group of people from the target community that also wanted to take their bows bow hunting. And it, it's almost like if, you know, I've taught a lot of kids. I've had for a while, I worked with a bunch of sixth graders. I had, I had, uh, uh, I had all the Waldorf schools in the Northwest come and meet it make bows. So there's six grade classes that come and make bows here and then we have an archery day. But all a lot of those kids they're they didn't come from hunting families necessarily, but I had a lot of kids comment, you know, you know, I could I could hunt with this, couldn't I? <laughs> I start shooting arrows. They started thinking, gee, this is this is real, you know. And I I got that comment, you know, it was not an uncommon thing for that to pop into the kids' heads, you know, um, during the archery part of the thing. And, I, and that pops into a lot of archers' heads. You know, over the years, we had a number of customers in our shop that didn't come from hunting families, but people just decided they wanted to be hunters. Um, you know, when they they learned about hunting and they, they read a little about it and, and it, you know, it makes you think that's something a little bit in our DNA that we, you know, that we do. Some of us do anyway. So, um, but here I'm rattling on. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is good stuff. Um, so what, what was it like? Was your father, did your father go out on a lot of, uh, hunting trips when you were young? Did you get to go along? What, what was, what did that look like? He he was yeah he hunted very actively, and uh, even got something once in a while you know which was kind of an event back in those days, and um, yeah they they um, that's kind of what he did during hunting seasons he was he was bow hunting actively from oh late thirties maybe nineteen forty or so that might have been his first season. And uh, he and a buddy, I think, got a deer that first time. He, he was, actually, he was out. He was involved in in it, like I say, in the late 30s. But but he he got a, I think he got a deer in 1940. And um, but yeah, he 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 did that a lot. And I I didn't join him in, in, until. Uh, first year I was out with him was 54. I'd been five. I wasn't much help. Uh, it, by that time they, they had built, we had our nascent creek game reserve preserve. It is in 1950. That was in immediately. This was in the Chelan County. It was pretty much wilderness area, uh, south of, uh, highway two south of Stevens pass and, uh, east of the crest about 12 miles. And, uh, elevation, you know, it was, it went from about 2000 feet up to about, Oh, nearly 5,000 in the back country of the thing a little bit. It's actually more like 6,000 feet in the back of it anyway. So it was, it was rugged country. And, and they built this cabin. They found this spot that had a lot of down cedar 
maybe a couple miles in from where you parked your car. And my dad uh, and Bob Kelly and Bob Arvine and Bill Jardine were his closest buddies and, and a few other guys, my uncle. My uncle uh, Mal Malinowski was involved in that. My my aunt's husband, and uh, they built this cabin in there. They, they called it Chalet, and it was uh, uh, it's pretty good mule deer country at the time. And so, by '54, the thing was pretty well established in there. They had they had a couple of years to work on it, and thing was all split cedar shakes and all that and uh Kelly and Arvine had had a lot of building experience with that. They're all grew up as you know, as as loggers. That's what they did when they were kids, you know. They they uh you know, they worked in the woods and my dad background was working in the woods. His dad was a timber cruiser and and traveled around from Spokane to Seattle and whatnot doing you know, cruising timber and and Dad spent a lot of time as a kid in these these lumber these logging camps and whatnot, as he talks about. But uh, yeah, so '54, I was in there uh, identifying deer tracks and announcing them loudly, you know. And, and uh, but boy, those guys were and, and these other guys had kids too. Uh, Kelly had some kids about the same age I was, and and. Boy, those people were awful good to us kids. You know, they some we sometimes during the day we just get left at the cabin by ourselves to while the guys were out hunting, and there's the cabin with a, a bunch of six and seven year olds left to their own devices. You know, they <laughs> they had they left sharp hatchets around for us to chop things with, and and. Uh, uh, you know, with a few cautions, we, you know, we got to just be wild kids for a while, you know, and uh, and then uh, uh, my dad was got involved going into Alaska and Canada in the early fifties. He he went to Canada in fifty five, first time, and and uh, I wasn't old enough to do any of that stuff, so he was. And I, I was too young to go to Little Delta and trips to Alaska and all that stuff, but he got involved in that pretty heavily for a long time. And um, but that was he, he was still hunting uh, at Mason Creek and doing a little bit of elk hunting over in the Olympic Peninsula. Uh, he got a he got a, a Roosevelt's in '52. Uh, so one of the there weren't many guys shooting elk with a bow and arrow in '52, not in Washington anyway. And um, so yeah, that was what he was doing. And uh, and he founded I got the, the, I got the Pope Young Club at that time. Well, the, after his trips to Alaska, he he went to Alaska in '57, '58, and '59. They did that like three years in a row and and uh, he did it three years in a row and, and uh, but he he was still selling around the country for bear you know it, it was uh, uh, he'd had a, a you know and we were still trying to make a living as a selling archery tackle which is 
really not a really good way to make money unless <laughs> unless you're a really good businessman and that's what you want to you know if you if you do it as a business and not as a hobby at all you know that's that's how you do it but he 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 had um um prior to all this while he was doing the, i want to mention too he, he got involved with a business uh, with sage rod company actually making uh fiberglass arrows we had a couple we had a something called grizzly glass that came out in around 54 55 that was pretty tough glass arrow so he did that but then that didn't really take off and then he did another glass arrow later on but and then he decided to see what it would be like making bows what would a bow factory be like and so he's he using the modern he, he'd used fiberglass as a bow backing earlier i've got a 1945 u bow that's got looks like a, he used b29 bulkhead material from boeing as a backing on it you know it's a mm-hmm. it's like almost like a fabric stuck on the back of it you know but it's obviously fiberglass and then he he but in 53 he decided to build 52 he built a little factory uh and and got a couple more people from the field archery community working for him. And together they they came up with this uh, Thunderbird recurve that I'm building right now. And uh, and it was a pretty successful bow. They, they sold them all. They built about 400 of the things. And, and from in 53, 54, whatnot, you see pictures of field archers in our area. It seemed like everybody had a Thunderbird in their hand for a while. And then that gave Dad a look at what Bear was doing, you know, what it would be like. And he decided he was not going to do that anymore. <laughs> it was too much work. He didn't get to go hunting in 53 and 54 very much because he had this little little bow shop factory thing going around, just keeping a lid on things, you know. And... and uh, and he knew what it was like just to go sell somebody else's bows. He'd been doing that. So so he just closed it up. There were no more Thunderbirds after 54, though. The whole thing disappeared. And he sold bears after that. So, But that, what, what I wanted to bring up that with was what it did was it made him free to wander around the, the, the Northwest. He had Montana and Idaho and Oregon and uh, in Alaska also is is his territory to to sell bear archery equipment and uh and they gave him a chance to talk to bow hunters all over the place about bow hunting and about organizing their states uh he was uh the hunting chairman of the nfa back in the mid late 50s he kind of went national with his involvement and was their hunting and he started a hunting committee and uh just dedicated toward bow hunting, and that, so he was beating the drum for for bow hunting at the time. And then he he was able to talk the uh, so anyway, being a salesman, let him be free to do that. And he he was, he was able to talk the NFA into breaking off the hunting committee into a separate organization, actually not even affiliated with the NFA directly and and he had a committee that he formed he took his hunting committee basically and started this thing 
that they decided to call the Pope a young club named after Saxon Pope and our young. So, um, and that was about 50. The earliest was probably about 57. It was still part of the FA in 56. But um, that's that was the beginning of the Pope and Young Club. And, and uh, the club didn't really... It was, it was, uh, well, we started out with a small number of members and it, it, my dad's idea was to grow it slow. And the guys that should become members that he really wanted to be members were the guys in each individual state that were beating the drum for bow hunting in those states. The guys that were, you know, that our, our season and our opportunity is not a national thing. It's just, you know, it's, it's local, uh, state by state. That's where our, you know, our, that's where we hunt, and that's that's where our seasons come from. Uh, or the guys in each state that are fighting for it every year, and as we know, it, the fight's never over. <laughs> it's no, the fight never it, ends. Uh, the fight never ends. It, it never ends. No, every every season is another battle. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. and it seems like. So, and- yeah, we'll get into that later. But it seems like right now we got a lot of battles, a lot of battles going on. So back, back, of, yeah. in the, back in the 50s, then just to give guys perspective, like a lot of these states didn't have archery season. So your dad was on the national level, con- like basically, you know, the idea of the Pope and Young, it sounds like, you know, was to get get that hand in each state to get them fighting for, for opportunity, correct? That's that's what it was really all about was, yeah. was getting bow hunting up on its hind legs. Man, you know, what, a, what, a, what a insight your father had to, to see the big picture at, at an early time. Well, and, and, and he had, you know, he had some, he had these other guys in around different states in contact and he was able to stir them up. And, uh, right. And, uh, it, it was a real slow process, you know, in the, in the early sixties, you know, most of the, even, even that late, most of the state agencies all thought we were out of our minds. You know, why, why should we have bow hunting? Who would want to do that? Does it work? Uh, I know they had, it was, it, I, this is something I, a story I just heard a few, actually a few days ago, Bill Stewart, was a Washington archer and bow hunter, and then he went out and built bow plants all over the country. The stuff that Bear was using in the in the uh, well, particularly after they moved to Florida, but uh, from the '60s onward, Stewart was was um, kind of an archery renaissance man. He was he worked for Damon Howitt in the '50s. That's where he got he learned from Damon Howitt. And, uh, but he was also kind of a, kind of like a mill writer. I don't know. He was a jack of all trades. He's an electrician. He was a welder. He was an archer. He could actually take an empty building and he could build you a whole factory from an empty building. He did that a number of times. But anyway, he, in Yakima, in the early 50s, he was one of the known archery guys and, they had a. They're trying to get elk hunting open in the state, and the this Department of Wildlife, the Department of Game at the time, had a 
he came up with this horse, this old horse. He wanted him to kill this horse with a bow and arrow just, just to show that it worked. So <laughs> Bill became the designated horse hunter. And uh, so he shot this, this old poor old horse with this arrow and horse horse died and then we had hunting with a bow and arrow for elk, you know. But that was that was Bill that was involved in that. And I, I didn't know that until somebody told me that story. So just showed up on Facebook a couple days ago. That was our elk season how yeah, it started then. And uh yeah, yeah, it was the the uh, so that that's how that worked out. But yeah, it was it was a battle, and and that's that's what he uh, sometimes we got to accompany him on sales trips. You know, I'd get a I'd go I'd go visit with him, or they'd take the family around and do a sales junket if he went to now, Montana or someplace interesting. And, now tell uh, me this, Jay. Uh, um, reading, reading between the lines, kind of, um, I've, I've read, uh, Bo's on the Little Delta a couple times, but it's been a while. Um, it seemed like your dad was almost like the front man for Fred Bear as far as like, uh, scouting and finding some of his adventures and pointing him in the right direction to make some of his films. Is, is there some truth to that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, well, dad was the dad was the bear rep for Alaska, <laughs> so he had right. a reason to travel up there, and can and and British Columbia, you know, it's just not a bad place to hunt. And uh, uh, you know, to, to make light of the whole thing, but anyway, he uh, uh, he was very interested in in taking bow hunting to bigger game, you know. There was there'd been moose hunting and whatnot in Canada. Guys, you know, Forrest Nagler and some other guys had had, had killed moose with a bow and arrow and whatnot. And back in the '30s, but uh, you know, being where we were in Washington, we were just below Canada and the kind of the gateway to Alaska. And so that's where my dad's imagination was going was was up north, taking his bow up north. He was. He was absolutely inspired by what Art Young had done in the 20s. And uh, isn't a lot of bow hunters more, you know. Uh, Art Young's Alaskan Adventures, you know, that was that was something else. And um, so he he headed that direction. And, and, he, and, of course, he was involved with Bear Archer Company selling their stuff. So Fred says, well, you know, let's, let me share this thing. You're, you're going to go north. I want, uh, you know, let's do this together. Set me up. <laughs> I'll I'll be there. You know, you get a you get a trip together, and I'll be there in a minute. And uh, I, I, yeah, I love I love that your dad was was the promoter of bows and arrows, not the promoter of himself. Um, I, I like looking back at the history and, you know, a lot of guys look up to Howard Hill and Fred Bear, which were, you know, great uh, icons of our, of our sport, or our lifestyle. Um, but they were self-promoters of, of themselves. And Glenn was kind of like in the background, like gluing all these pieces together 
and, and making this, uh, uh, setting this all up for everybody else. But it, it was never about him. It was always about the bow and arrow. And, and I really well, appreciate that he, about, about your father. Well, it was, it was, a, there was a method to the whole thing. And when I was, I was state bow hunter president for, for a while. And then I, and then I was on board of directors. I was involved with our state bow hunters for quite a, quite a long time. And dad told me, you know, when I, when I first took on that job, he says, what you do is you, which the way to lead is lead from behind. And he says, what you do is you find guys that, that really have some talents that you want to work with and then put them out front and support them all you can. And, you know, it make those guys be as strong, the strong guys that they can be and use your knowledge and, talent to you know but give them the credit because they're doing they're going to do the work but but help them in that direction you know lead from behind and that was that's a valuable experience to me and and uh i you know i had the northwest archery company counter i was i was working behind the counter until uh started making bows in 89 until 89 i was i'd see guys come in the store that were I think, man, we got to have this guy on our board of directors. I—that's where I did all my recruiting, was behind the counter, our customers, and it was perfect, you know. And but that's what. Uh, so that was it. Was just kind of his leadership style, and and yeah, he. It was. Uh, it was the way he figured was that if he had. You know, if a rising tide raises all boats, and yeah. his boat would rise too, you know, and uh, yeah, and it, which it did to a degree, but but he he was always more interested, yeah, in in uh, in, in promoting that particular thing, and that's where the Pope Young Club come, came from, yeah, it was and and it worked. Uh, all those national leaders from around the country that became members, that's who we wanted to be members. That's who we wanted to recruit. And that's where and we it was, recruited from. Yeah. And it was originally about proving the lethality of, uh, uh, of our equipment. I mean, that's basically what, how it started, right? Oh yeah. He wanted, he wanted to show all of these managers, these game managers around the country that the bow and the bow and arrow really worked as a hunting weapon, and it should be part of their management program. That they have the bow and arrow as a tool for management in their programs, and and uh, through the Pope and Young Club, with you know, we kind of saw what the Boone and Crockett Club was doing with their their trophies and whatnot. He thought, well. It, it would give some people some reason to enter animals, you know, it'd make it like a club where you have records and whatnot. And it would, and how are we going to get people to, to care about showing the animals that they harvest? So we can point at those, those animals and say, department of wildlife, department of game, look what we're doing. Look what guys are doing with bows and arrows. We can do it just like the rifle guys can do. We can, we can be a, a you know part of your management program so that was the whole thing that was the whole idea uh, 
was to have something to show somebody and, uh, you know, show that we weren't out of our minds, you know, <laughs> thinking about it. So, but yeah, and, and, and it worked, it, it's still working. Uh, Archie was pretty much up in his hind legs by the, by the, you know, by the late seventies or actually late sixties, whatnot. And the, the period of time, Dad's last trip to Alaska was 59. From 59, from 1960 until, I forget when he passed on the leadership of the Pope and Young Club. He was, he was president of the Pope and Young Club for like 10 years or something like that. Just because he, like he described it, I had, I had a hold of an electric cord and I couldn't let go of it. <laughs> you know, it was, I, I couldn't let go of it until somebody else, I had somebody else I could hand it to, you know? And, um, so, uh, uh, but the, the, that was all, that was about all he did for about those 10 years was get the club on its back. Or my, my aunt Rose was the secretary of the club in, in the arch office of the Northwest Archery Company. That was the office of the club. Everybody was a volunteer outside of that. Uh, the only reason Rose got paid anything was she was also our secretary. So she just, that was part of her secretarial job for Northwest Archery Company was, was being secretary at Popeyon Club. And everything else was a donation. And, um, the club didn't have any money, you know, and, uh, the, the the entries really didn't make much money. Uh, we had a we had a number of um, few key people that Dick Dick Mock early on became uh, an early records chairman. Dick Mock from Bassett, Nebraska was was a was a bear dealer, and uh, and. He had his own habit. It was was a farm owner, big farm owner out there. Where everything is, you know, I mean, being a big farmer means you have you have a farm in Nebraska. That's all it is. Is a bunch of, you know, is a is a bunch of pretty good hunting country and and a bunch of these big big properties and that you know don't necessarily make a lot of lot of money, but that's what you have to have if you can make any money. But he Dick had his, had his own airplane and would fly around, which gave yeah. him a lot of mobility, doing the same thing that Dad was doing, actually. And he had the pleasure of having Dick on. He, he was a great gentleman. And he's something else, yeah. 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 He, uh, as anybody would tell you, Dick had a Rolodex for a mind. Incredible yeah. memory. And made him a perfect records chairman, among other things. Uh, he could hold things in his head in in an uncanny way, and uh, which is true right up into his nineties. He sharp yeah. mind. So, so uh, were these seasons being developed pretty rapid by now? Like, so Pope Young's established. Um, is this really starting to get the ball rolling? Um, are seasons popping up in, in Western, you know, and through the Midwest or what did that look like? You know? Yeah. Yeah, they were, they were, uh, state by state. 
states were getting their own opportunity, their own separate opportunity. And uh, uh, one one group of guys in one state would inspire another group. And uh, it was kind of like like a bunch of little fires being kindled around the country. And, and uh, that was going on all through the the uh the fifties and sixties and into the seventies there were still states I forget what states there were. Some states were you know were slow to come on board. But sometime by the, the mid seventies everything was was starting to cook. And the uh I mentioned the name Bob Kelly uh earlier is one of my dad's hunting partners and he was He's part of the crew that was up in Little Delta with Fred was up there. Uh, Fred hunted with Bob Kelly uh, up there, and uh, it took them a real liking to each other. Uh, Kelly is quite a force of nature in his own part there. Uh, tough, tough Irishman, uh, uh, former naval aviator, aviator that was. He's running the TV repair business in Seattle, actually. And uh, but he and Fred hit it off, and uh, Fred decided he wanted to have Kelly come and work for him. And Kelly had been involved in these indoor lanes, and and a lot of our, you know Kelly went national with his involvement. Uh, another case of a guy that was not. Not at all a self-promoter. You'll never hear Bob Kelly, except people inside the industry. They all know who Bob Kelly was. And uh, he, uh, a, uh, he went to work as Bear's sales, uh, sales manager to start with. And uh, with him at the helm there, uh, Bear got up on its hind legs as what it did. And he, he later was CEO of, of uh, Bear into the 80s. He was one of the founders of the archery uh, manufacturers association. They called it AMO at the time. And uh, that's still around with a different name on it now. But that was Kelly in the middle of that whole thing. And, and uh, so he was a real key player in this. And and uh, and and then throughout the industry, there were other other guys that were were doing things. You know, they he had uh, some some guys were writing, like Jim Doherty. You know, wrote all those articles. Uh, uh, you know, it takes it takes all this going at one time. Yeah. And I there's there's too many names to mention, but. But uh, those are some that you know that have to be mentioned on the thing. They, and and they, uh, you guys are doing it all. You guys are doing all this with telephones, like no cell phones, no <laughs> emails, no. Oh yeah, it was all it was all on it was all on paper. It was all letters being mailed back and forth in the regular old telephone. Yeah, it's hard <laughs> hard to imagine us not having smartphones, right? Uh, yeah, of course, we were on the phone with, you know, where their store business it was the same telephone. We had one phone line. We had, we had, a, we had a house line and a, and a business line, which he used both of them real heavily. But, but yeah, he spent a lot of time on the phone. But he, 
he always had because of his salesman job. Uh, So, and his phone skills, consequently, were pretty good. You know, and that's what you do is talk on the phone all day. You get you get better at it, and and that helped him quite a bit, really. I had the same experience. I was on the phone a lot, and I got good on the phone. I I think mine have really dropped off heavily since then. But but um, I, when I was state bow hunter president, I was on the phone an awful lot. I and. Uh, all all the guys that run my board of directors, I talked to each one of them every week. We had they could expect a phone call from me, and uh, and we talked that the agency was we were no stranger to them, and um, and and we got some things done during that time. I, and, and the guys that, that I was able to help bring on board, and and then how they took over things and and. Uh, fact, a lot of the guys I recruited were salesmen. I had a couple of candy salesmen actually <laughs> worked for and they worked for Mission actually. And I know one of them was a paper salesman and the other was a candy salesman. And those guys were were fantastic, and they were super hardcore bow hunters, you know. So um, that kind so of those kind of guys. So coming into the, like the fifties and sixties. Uh, and seasons are starting to pop up in each state, and they're you know starting to get a, a stronghold for archery. Um, yeah, was it getting easier, or or was the fight just as intense? I mean, uh, oh. well, it was. What was easier was we had the, the 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 seasons got established, and so each state had had some kind of dedicated bow hunting opportunity, and and that made it easier. The game managers talked to each other. Uh, agencies agreed that bow hunting was was a viable thing, and uh, and, and 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 that was a really big deal. Um, you know, everybody around the country was bow hunting, and uh, so they could do some networking and and the, and of course the industry was involved. Uh, you know, some of them more than others. Uh, Bear was always, you know, was always there and. And uh, most of the most of the companies were helping out in their own states and whatnot. But but as you know, if you're running a company, the biggest challenge is just to stay alive and be a company. So that was a good part of what they were doing. But the guys that were actually making the seasons happen were just the individual bow hunters and the bow hunting organizations. Uh, in Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and all these places, but they all had their own state bow hunters. And those were the guys that actually made things happen. The individuals, uh, more than anything else. Yeah. And, uh, so, but in part of it was too, was, as you mentioned earlier, I just want to add was that the battle was never over. In other words, in each one of these individual states, there was no sleeping on it. So that was part of it. They got good at fighting for seasons. That was its own thing. Anyway, that's what I wanted to bring up. That that was part of what made uh, made it made it easier is the guys got good at understanding the game, how to, how to make it work for them. 
you know. Yeah. So once these seasons got established, I imagine that the turning point of marketing and gizmos and gadgets uh, started to show up on the scene. Oh, absolutely. Well, that, if you read the early archery magazines, even from the, you look at the ads and you sell an archer, guys <laughs> are making stuff back then. But particularly, you get into uh, the 1950s, you read bow ads in there and you come to understand that everybody that makes a bow has the fastest bow in the world, you know. <laughs> And so, you know, by now our bow should be shooting at light speed, you know. So, um, but that was all going on. It was, you know, there was um, a lot of accessories that came and went. Um, and what, what, one of the big turning points was certainly the compound bow, and that was a huge turning point because what it did was it it, it allowed a, a shooting platform. You know, there were guys that were put for years. In fact, field archery kind of, you know, NFA sort of prompted that going. People were trying to become more mechanical and better at hitting targets at known ranges and whatnot. So people were putting sights on their recurves, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, it was all recurves back then. Hardly any longbows around. Long, the recurves just sort of replaced the longbow for a long, long time. But, uh, compound bow is a bow that you could put a sight on and you could hold it back at full draw for a period of time. And, and, um, I, I remember one of the, the general comments from my customers that, you know, when the compound bow came out and we, I was there at the beginning of the compound bow, you know, I went back into the store at 73 and by that time they were starting to really, you know, at that time the compounded was becoming the thing. And in a few years, all these companies who were making recurs, even quit making bear gave away almost their whole stock in recurs. You could, we could buy Bear Kodiak Magnus for twelve bucks. That's what Bear was selling them for in the dealers. They, they, yeah, they at one point, at, at one point, I, I, we, uh, uh, one of my friends that was a dealer said that he was getting them for five bucks if he oh, bought yeah. enough compound bows. Yeah, I, I believe it. Yeah, no, that's what, true. That's what, what was happening. I, what was that? What was your father's uh, reaction to the compound bow initially? Well, it was, it was, uh, at first, the compound bows that we had to sell in 72, 73 were, they all looked like they were refugees from some hardware store. You know, they, they barely worked. And everyone we got in was a prototype and most of them, they all had problems. From week to week, the bows kept changing because the, the, the companies that were making them were trying to make them work and make them stay in one piece. And so we never know what was going to come in the box, you know. And, and of course, there was a troop of target archers that were that were kind of doing the development part of the thing. Uh, but it was um, every customer was a guinea pig, <laughs> literally, uh, in the early seventies. And, and then Bear 
came out with their Alaskan and Bear finally got involved in it in like 74, 75. And, and their early stuff was a little bit, it was pretty good. It was pretty good, but everything was, the materials were all based on recurve technology, which was not was barely sturdy enough to make compound bows. But what what was started to change was the customers a little bit. And I, there was one comment that, that I remember indelibly and I heard it more than once is that uh, a guy would come in the store and he'd say that the the, outf- the bow that shoots the most like a rifle, that's the one I want. <laughs> so what they really wanted to do, they wanted to be in the in the bow elk season. And it was really the elk season that was the, the big thing. We got we got a, a statewide elk season in the early 80s. And and you, Oregon followed pretty much about the same. What uh, what was the established dates on that on that season in Washington? I think it was it was either eighty three or eighty four, maybe it was eighty two. It was right around there. Did you right guys have a, a? Did you guys initially have a four or five week elk season? Uh yeah, yeah that that statewide was changed. It was a total game changer because. We had for about four or five weeks. We had with the, almost the whole darn state, and we had it right. Kind of, it was uh, you know some of the rut was involved in that, and uh, it brought forth a flood of rifle community guys that all of a sudden wanted to become bow hunters, and, mm-hmm. and they went out and shot some huge elk in that that period of time. Uh, our, our own bow hunters did that too, but. It, it brought in a different community of guys, and uh, it, it brought in. It you know, a bear was promoting two season the two season hunter, um, and but in Washington you could only buy, you had to buy a dedicated tag. It was either a bow tag or a rifle tag. They would let you. They wouldn't let you. You, you could go hunt with your bow with your rifle tag in the rifle season. But if you wanted to hunt in the bow season, you had to buy a bow-only tag. And um, so it turned all these guys into instant bow hunters. And uh, there, with these compound bows, you could, Well, yeah, yeah. There was, there was, we did our best to educate these guys. And, uh, and it was, it was exciting, the fact that we had this statewide thing open, you know, at the time, but in, in, and we sold a lot of compound bows at the time, but it was in a, sort of as a side thing. I don't know if these guys were, were really causing any problems out there. And that a lot of the guys that were out there were actually pretty good hunters. They just became bow hunters, but they were, they were not archers. They were not archers first. They were really, uh, were prior to that, uh, a lot of the guys that were, a, a, a larger percentage of the guys that were bow hunters with recurves and whatnot, were, were, 
what I would call archers. They were, they, you still had, in fact, at that time you had to buy either a bow tag or a, a rifle tag. You couldn't hunt all the seasons. And these guys that were our customers were what I would call bow hunters. They didn't hunt with a rifle. They hunted with a bow. And they, so when they thought about hunting, it was always bow hunting. And, uh, and this new crop of guys were hunters first. And they didn't really care what they were hunting with. They wanted to be out in the elk season during the rut or part of the rut. And that was their whole their whole thing. The, the bow was simply the tool that was available to them to get them into that thing. So it was a different crew. Uh, but I don't think they damaged anything on the outset. Uh, were you guys they worried were, about ease of entry at that point? What's that? Or you're... Were you guys concerned about ease of entry into the archery season to that point, or you were just still trying to grow the season? So it did. You well, we're still trying. We're trying to. We're trying to grow the seasons, and uh, but honestly, back when we got into the later '80s, and I can I can tell you specifically, there was a watershed moment there that uh, this is at this point in time, like late late 80s, the overdraws started to come out, and guys were starting to shoot. You know, the compound bows were still pretty much in their infancy. They didn't look anything like the bows today. Uh, you know, there was there was bows that were at, when they first came out with this, what's it called? Cams, these offset cams, you know, that weren't round wheels. The early numbers of those, there was one company that sold those things that if you dry fired their bow, the whole thing would blow up. Limbs, wheels, cables. It was. It was. It turned up. If you drive fired one of those bows, the whole thing turned into a, a bunch of garbage. <laughs> that was one company, and uh, and they fixed that eventually. But it was a pretty wild time uh, for you know everybody's trying to make their bows go faster, uh, and uh, anyway, the. What happened in the late 80s, though, there was a, a a number of outfits that were promoting literally openly longer-range, longer and longer-range shooting. Uh, there, was, there was a shop somewhere up north of us that had a archery shop that had a picture of a guy that he shot this cow elk at 100 and some yards between the eyes, shot it between the eyes. You know, and they had this picture like it was a big deal in their archery shop, you know. And and that that got my attention anyway. And uh, but there was a lot of guys talking about now now we got these faster arrows and they're not as fast as they are now. And we're talking, you know, two hundred and fifty feet per second outfits, but they're they're trying to overextend themselves you know archers have always extended themselves to some degree but this didn't look like bow hunting any longer and you know it was there's a there's a phrase there's a term called hubris hubris means that you think you might know more than you do 
and it makes you do things that that just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Just because you can, you know, and in in our case, my case, it, it this this for me this this period of time, this late eighties. I was state bow hunter president. I was brand new state bow hunter president, but I'd been involved in, you know, from the archery shop behind the counter. I was telling about my, talking about my dad's phone skills and I had phone skills too and all this. But the, we got thinking, I, and I, one of my, one of my friends was a, a deputy director of the department of game at the time in a, in a traditional bow hunter. Uh, and we talked to him about this, you know, and he was getting, he was letting us know that the, the resource managers in Washington were getting concerned about the number of animals that were being harvested with these modern, with this modern tackle and, and how guys were behaving out there with it. But mostly it was just starting to kill a lot of animals more than, more than we were before the, the, you know, the, the success rates. We're going up, and this is what you were talking about. You were asking about here, and uh, right. So, uh, in our concern, my concern is what the heck people are doing with their bows and arrows. They're not this long-range stuff. This promoting this, what does not look like bow hunting. Uh, you know, it looks like rifle hunting, shooting something between the eyes. That's not a bow thing. I don't have to even say. But they, was uh, there was there two distinct camps then at this point? Were there were there still the the bow hunters coming in, the guys that that uh, oh yeah, you know, bled bow hunting, and then there was this new rifle hunting mentality. Yeah, they were all still there. You know, nobody went anywhere. The same old bow hunters were still coming in, and a lot of them were trying compound bows. Uh, and some of them stayed with the compound bows for a while. But some of them also didn't. Some of them went back. You know, they, I guess I would say with the early compound bows, it was like the early computers in the early printers that we knew hated us. You know, we, fighting with early computers, you're fighting with early compound bows that that. You know, there's a lot of, like we talked about the smoke and mirrors. I didn't use that phrase, but, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of accessory sales. And then in archery, too, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors going on. Stuff that's supposed to work a certain way, but doesn't really, you know. And like the whole concept of shooting 100 yards with a bow and arrow doesn't really work very well. But it's, some people, some local shops are promoting such things. and. So what can we do? Uh, my dad and brother and I, and, and uh, I was going through, a, I had a honeymoon period with, as, as a new president of the state bow hunters. I, you know, I, I, I had uh, worked, I felt like, plus I, I, I personally probably knew more bow hunters in the state than anybody else in the state, just from working behind the counter for the years I had. I knew a lot of bow hunters. And uh, and we had this deputy director that was kind of on board with us. And the concern was, what's happening to our seasons? Uh, the, the guys are doing not good things out there. Some of them are. 
and we're starting to kill an awful lot of animals. And where's this going to go? Uh, we're going to hear some other here in some other states too. The managers were concerned about. We're not the same bow hunting that we presented ourselves to be ten years earlier. We were a different kind of bow hunting, you know. And, and uh, but you know, managers are always making noises like this too. It, it, they're still making the same sounds. You know, they, there's the fight never ends. You know, so uh, we. I thought it. You know, what can we do to kind of tone this stuff down a little bit? Uh, you know, we're, we, we thought, came up with, and I had learned this before too, you can only do, you can't do, you can only do so many things. If you want to take something before the state wildlife commission, you have to make their life easy for them. If, if you want to change your seasons, you pick up two or three or maybe at the max four things that you go after. You don't go after the whole thing. You go after the two or three or four things that you can actually get. You know, what can we actually get this year? What what season, you know, we can't go after everything. So we pick out, we target, and and then just go all out on those. I don't know, that's, that's how you probably have been doing it in Oregon, you know, for years. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so we, we picked out... Uh, Something we picked out arrow weight. We picked out electronics. Uh, at, at that time, there was a in '88. There was a full page ad in some of the magazines. There's some guy that had a radio transmitter and an arrow, and the ad said that so and so just shot a bull elk on Sunday. It's Wednesday, and he's still looking for it. But if he had this radio transmitter. He found his elk, you know, that was, that was, uh, that caught my attention, you know, and, um, but cause it just suggested boning doesn't work, <laughs> you know, it, it completely threw all that stuff at the whole thing we've been fighting for in our face, you know, and which is not true, you know, and, uh, that kind of stuff was coming out. So no electronics, we, we, we're going to, no electronics on bows or arrows, uh, no, we came up with this idea that 65% let off was enough. If they had more let off, maybe they'd hold, you know, they'd shoot more like a rifle. Uh, came up with arrow weight, not minimum, a minimum arrow weight again. And uh, actually those three things, we thought we could get those three things passed through. And... Um, one of the tools we used was a flight arrow that was one of Vern Godsey was a local flight shooter. And then one of his carbon shaft flight arrows that he shot, he used to shoot, you know, 700 yards with or something. And it had, it had razor blade, injector razor blades for fletching on this little carbon shaft. And uh, so it wasn't a hunting arrow. This was, but it was an arrow. And, and technically, if those little injector razor blades were seven-eighths of an inch total diameter in the back, you could go hunt with that thing if you wanted to. And Jack, our our friend in the department, 
uh, a deputy director at the time, took this to a meeting in Olympia uh, of all his co- colleagues. They were having a big regional meeting. And he took this flight arrow and he dropped it on the table. And he says, this is a legal hunting arrow in Washington State. <laughs> if the blades for a little longer. And that stopped the whole meeting. <laughs> I mean, this is, we we were using the hyperbola here, but we got the attention of that whole thing. And before we knew it, the Department of Wildlife had taken our proposal for the let off and the no electronics and the arrow weight and made it their proposal for the commission. That's so all right. we had to do was, was support the agency. And uh, we did this in a hurry. We, we started this in, in March and the decision-making meeting was in May. And I, it was not to my credit necessarily. I knew that if we could get ahead of the industry on this, I knew the industry was going to go nuts. But if we could do this immediately before they could mount a counter-offense, before they could even figure out what the heck we were doing, we could get it in. And uh, this is where my hubris comes in here. I mean, it was... As we know, and we didn't know what was going to happen. This was an experiment. You know, can we get the attention of the industry with this thing? And uh, which I should have known better, you know. <laughs> so, and the industry went nuts. It was it was a tough time for me because I had I had customers mad at me. I had customers. In fact, when we had our meeting in May. Where they made the decision on this, that the uh, I had a I call I, I was on the phone for two months. That's all I did was work on this project, and I had the place full of bow hunters. We were hanging off the rafters of people that were supporting this thing, supporting this this deal, and and then they had people from the industry showed up, uh, people I knew really well were were pretty mad at me and because they didn't agree that we should put any barrier up you know this is a barrier it was it was negative it was divisive it was all these things like and uh yeah. it was a real we, learning we, experience yeah jay we all we all got to stick together that's what they said that's what they tell us in this big tent theory we all we, we don't do that we all got to stick together yeah that Stop the negative. That was, you know, keep don't do the negative vibes thing here. So, uh, and that's there's truth to that too, absolutely. But um, so, what kind of so arrow anyway, weight? Were, were, when, yeah. Go what ahead. kind of arrow Excuse weight me. were you guys establishing? Oh, we we wanted uh, we wanted one grain. We wanted four hundred thirty-seven grains. By one ounce, we wanted one ounce. One ounce arrow. One ounce. And, and, uh, it was, um, we had a guy that was involved with their state voters at the time. It was a trial attorney. And he's kind of quarterbacking with the meeting we were at. You know, we had one of our board members wanted to compromise on, on a couple things. And, and, uh, 
Elrond Aldi, the guy that was her attorney guy, he was saying he's, he's been he had a big yellow notepad. He's looking at the faces on on the commission members, and he says, "Oh no, no, Can't, these guys are with us. We don't need to compromise." You know, you know. So we had a lot of talent working with us, and one of the, the commissioner, the chairman of the commission, when they finally passed on us, they not only gave us what we were asking for. They reinstated a late elk season that they were taking away just oh. on the strength of of how we were policing ourselves and how 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 grand they thought that that what we were doing as archers and we so we got a season back that we we're gonna lose. And and the guy said that the reason we voted for you was the quality of the people that were here to testify. And which meant the people that were against it were lower, were lower quality people. So like, <laughs> that, that was not necessary, you know. It was and it wasn't true. Uh, but so it was kind of it was you know it was sort of a double whammy thing on it. But so as we know, so you guys, yeah, you guys demonstrating that you would lower your technology, you, you increased the season right there. Oh yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. The commission thought that was just, and, and it actually it cemented our relationship with the commission for the next decade. I, I imagine if that. there was ever an archery question, man, we were the ones, we were the go-to guys. You know, we man, could get an I, audience with could, anybody, anytime. Yeah. Jay, if I could play arm, armchair quarterback, I wish uh, I wish we would have kept the mechanical release uh, becoming legal. I think that would have changed everything. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, and that that was well that made that made the um, and and that's something we didn't put in there though we just did those three things. I know, and I don't know it that was, mechanical it was release an arbitrary thing. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That mechanical release, you know, it made the bow shorter. It made the let off uh, able to have extreme let off. Kept kept your fingers off the string. I mean, it, it took archery out of out of it. Really, it's, it, in my opinion. Oh yeah, and it, and it didn't work with beans with the recurve. You know, you needed the let off to make the mechanical release work. Uh, right. Anyway, fo- following that meeting, we had Pope and Young Club had a had a board meeting a couple months later, and and seeing what we had done and whatnot, and that whole board voted unanimously to adopt our. Uh, they adopted the electronics and the let off, not the arrow weight thing. But you know, as you say, nobody addressed the nobody addressed the mechanical release. But the Pope and Young Club sort of followed suit with what Washington was doing at the time. They had a big meeting about it. It was it was quite a board meeting when they did that. And so that was, was probably the beginning. Also. That was the beginning of Pope and Young Club kind of becoming a a political. A political police for bow hunting, almost if you will. They that was the kind of driving, yeah. driving the bus. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah, that began right. And it was not a great bus to be on because it was immediately contentious and and had people, individual bow hunters and industry and except on the board of directors of Pope and Young Club at the time. Uh, uh, there were a lot of industry people on that board that voted for it. 
that they were old guard, you know? And um, so, but as we know... You know, looking looking back at that, you guys were in business for yourselves, and and you guys were, uh, you know, looking out for bow hunting instead of looking out for your guys' bottom line. I think that's really important to to, to point well, out because a lot of guys sure. aren't willing to do so. It, it was important to us to have bow hunting be what we wanted it to be, you know, or what we thought it should be. So it was in in what we uh, in, in to have it be practiced in the way that we thought it should be practiced, and and uh, you know, otherwise it was not something we might not want to be involved in. So it was. It was a little self-serving for our own opinions on that. Is we we knew what we wanted to we knew it, it what we wanted it to be and and what we because we fought for seasons all in it the season. My dad had been involved constantly. He was there at the meeting. He's he never he was never not involved in both season you know negotiations. And uh, we saw kind of what we thought this whole thing was going and. Uh, And as it's worked out, you know, we still have our bow seasons, although they're certainly shorter than we initially yeah, let's, had. Let's talk about that. Uh, when did they cut your season in half? Well, almost immediately. <laughs> <laughs> but it was over. It was it was over. You know, it was it was um, incremental uh, over periods of time when it was perceived that we were taking more animals at one point. In fact, right now it looks like we've got about the same success ratio as rifle. In fact, what they what this equity thing that uh, boy, it was called it was an allotment thing and uh, resource allotment. And what we were moving towards was equal. They wanted us to have equal success ratios per. Hours in the woods with muzzleloader rifle and bow, and oh, now yeah, it was allocation. That's what our agency called it. So, and we were at some point they thought we were just having too much fun out there, and of course the rifle hunters were were noticing that their seasons were a lot shorter than ours still. And we had seasons that they wouldn't give to the rifle hunters. And so the rifle hunters were not as organized as we were. But the agency itself, it's the, the less time that they have people, if they can get the job done managing the, the, the animals with the less amount of time out in the woods, that was one of the concepts that, the agency has held, you know, they're, instead of, they're supposed to be maximizing the recreational time in the woods also. That was, you know, that's one of the things that I'm not even sure if that's on the list right now, but it used to be. And that was the whole key with bow hunting is we, we are maximizing recreational time in the woods at, with the lowest impact on animals. And uh, on the resource, and so, but then it became a, a matter of 
of what's of fairness, which you know, if fairness is uh, is pretty much a meaningless phrase or you know or word. So and uh, so we've been kind of fighting that game. You know, it's it's a matter of whose whose piece of pie looks like what. And and it was a means for the agency to kind of get a hold of things again. And, and that's still going on to some degree. And and then the, there was another concept that, you know, they've been looking for means to, to kind of keep a lid on the boat, on the hunting in general and, uh, and protect their, you know, their main job is to protect the resource too. But as our agency has evolved, the game animals have become less and less of an issue. The less of their budget is requiring license and tag sales, and more of it's requiring money that they get from the legislature. Uh, our demographics in this state are changing. Where we've got we have a lot more people that don't even relate to hunting at all uh, or even wildlife. I mean, we've got people coming from other parts of the world that have never, don't even know what wildlife is, you know, and this agency has to survive in this new environment. So they're, they're keeping, trying to keep their head afloat there. I don't know if your state, agency in Oregon's like ours, but they're the absolute tail in Charlie's from a standpoint of funding. You know, they, they'll give anybody money before they'll give the Department of Wildlife money. Yeah. And you know, that's a, that's a fact. So, um, so when did the, when did they decide to cut your season in half? Cause I know most all elk states have a, have, you know, a, four or five week season and Washington has a two week season. Did they cut it? Did they look at the success rates and say, yeah, we can't have this. And they just chopped it in half there. When did that they, actually happen? They didn't, they didn't chop it in half all at once. They chopped it off days at a time. Okay. But yeah, okay. there was, there was a big, there was a big chop and I don't remember exactly when it was. It was, it was, uh, it was sometime in the nineties. But it was actually it was fairly early on. Uh, maybe it was even more like 1990. And, um, you know, it, you know it was, it, it, we always had a, a late season and an early season. But, yeah, it was fairly early on. They didn't, let, they didn't let that season go very many years before it was, they chopped into it. In fact, if, if I, if I don't have anything in front of me. It may have been part of what we were addressing in 88. You know, we got that season in like 83 and it may have been as early as that. I, um, we were getting, we were concerned about, you know, the length of time in our season. They were going to take the late season away. And that's what we saved. But there was a, there was a march on it to cut us back as, as soon as we got them. Actually, there was a there was movement in that direction, and 
and, yeah, and right, right now, now we're right now we're you know, we're battling to keep ours in Oregon. I mean they're they're not talking about cutting it in half, but I've been in meetings the last couple of years over they're trying to trying to control it all. You know we still have general season in most of our units. There's ten or so that aren't, but they're going to start cutting we, tags because overcrowding and over harvest. So. Yeah, that's the, that's the, that's what, that's what, the, that's what they say. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think our, our elk resource has never been at the level that you guys have down there. Um, you got more wilderness and, and, um, you know, more quality elk habitat. You, we, we don't really have elk up in the north northern part of our state, northeast or whatnot. It's it's more oh central south where our elk herds are. You know, in in your state, it's it's uh, more like up north. You know, a little bit. Yeah. And then we have always well, had the coast, but then we've got the Olympic National Park that takes up a big core of that. And then there's you know there. It's a different kind of hunt, the coastal elk than the Yellowstone completely. But but the um, yeah, our, our yeah, it, it, and it's a resource that kind of takes care of itself. The, the coastal elk, to some degree, you know, they're affected by logging things. The logging's been cut way back, and the actually the logging was good for the elk, and. Yeah. We don't have the edge habitat that we used to have. It just doesn't exist anymore. So, but the a lot of our our eastern Washington elk herd was somewhat artificial in that they would have to do a lot of feeding in the winter. So it was it it was not a resource that supported itself very easy without you know without a, a program like that. Don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. Check us out on Instagram. Send us an email at tradquestpodcast at gmail. Don't forget to support us on our Patreon page. Keep the wind in your face. Pick a spot and shoot straight. I've got Nimrod the